from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Taylor. Hey, guys. Well, we got some good feedback on our last episode, Freedom in Motion. We you got, mean we got listener email? We got a listener email. I'm excited about a, that. What time out? A listener email, not listener emails. I mean, we don't get that much listener email. It's pretty exciting. A lot of listener DMs. <laughs> so yeah, Gary, I guess I'll just leave it at that. And he is promoting a concept called MOM, MOM, which stands for Micromanufacturing Open Source Micromobility to promote protected and connected bike path superhighways that would focus on commuting patterns of underserved communities. And he envisions a centralized nonprofit that makes a catalog of simple vehicles that anyone could build. And they would be like cargo bikes, I guess. It would be enclosed and you'd have heat and air conditioning and electric cargo bikes, trikes, and quad bikes would be part of the design. Wow. I love that. I do love that idea, Gary. You know, a friend of mine got married and I took them from the wedding to the reception in a cargo bike <laughs> with a big just married yeah. placard on it. That's awesome. Yeah, this is a big idea, Gary. Micro manufacturing, open source, micro mobility, mom. I wonder if one of the companies like an Uber or a Lyft would be interested because it sounds very expensive. I wonder if he's thinking it would come from the private or public sector. Well, he did say nonprofit. So where does that nonprofit get that money? Big money. Well, it's not as big as buying a truck. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the money they're already spending at UPS. They're spending it at UPS. I'd like the idea. I'm not criticizing it. I don't mean to rain on a good idea. So this brings up a couple of articles. One was in Streets Blog and the other one's a blog about e-bikes. It's called Electric about how in Boston, Mayor Wu announced that starting in September, they're going to pilot cargo bike delivery. And in the picture for it, it shows an enclosed cargo bike painted like a UPS truck. And then in New York City, the New York City Department of Transportation is going to start talking about changing the rules to allow, what is it? Extra thick four-wheeled electric cargo bikes. Yeah. Well, extra thick. I think the whole thing is thick. The whole bike. You're going to need to change the rules for where they can go. Because if they're going to go down bike paths or this is where Gary comes in. This is what I'm talking about too. If you get an interest from groups like UPS and you get a city like New York on board, I think that it's something that catches on. I wonder actually if that classification change in New York, I wonder if that is one of the first of its kind in the country or how significant that change is. I'm going to look into that a little bit. Well, this could be a game changer. I mean, how many trucks does Amazon have? Does UPS have? You get some of those trucks off the road and you make shorter distance deliveries with cargo bikes, with e-bikes. It's the way of the future. Yeah. So you have an interview for us today, Taylor. Lindsay and I were lucky enough to sit down with two advocates, Dr. Grace Pang, who is a scientist and the Natural Resources Chair for the League of Women Voters in L.A., and Bella Chu, who works at Stanford University in population health sciences. She focuses on social and environmental determinants of health, particularly in the built environment and in housing policy. And Lindsay and I got to sit down with both of them, and we covered a lot of issues, everything from how humans evolved to exercise to civil rights to living in a world that is dominated by cars. So here's that interview with Dr. Grace Pang and Bella Chu. 
No one's going to be surprised that biking is good for your physical health, mental health, financial well-being, livability, or the planet. Today, we're going to hear from two experts who've given it a lot of thought and talk about systems thinking, health and economic impacts, which can be really extraordinary. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Lindsay Sturman, and I have Taylor Nichols here, my co-host, and Dr. Grace Pang and Bella Chu. Hi, nice to see everyone. Hi, Grace. Hi, Bella. Good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to talk about this topic that we all care so much about. Bella, you've done a lot of work on biking and health. And I wonder if you could start with that, just about, you know, what are the health benefits, both physical and financial, with biking compared to, say, driving? So I think the basic fact about human beings is that we actually evolved to walk about 5 to 10 kilometers a day uh, for daily exertion. And we evolved to exert ourselves on a daily basis. And so walking and biking are a really good way to get sort of the optimal dose of physical activity without having to carve it out of your day. You don't have to set aside time for exercise. So if you live in a place where you can do everything you need to do on foot, on a bike, you're going to hit recommended targets of activity. The other thing that's interesting is I actually learned that from a neurologist And he was talking about the cognitive impacts of getting older people to be able to walk. So that really got me to thinking deeply about what are the health impacts of daily activity. Right. So it's kind of like that 10,000 steps that your iPhone makes you do. Right. Well, or tells you whether you did it or not. And just anecdotally, I have an e-bike now and my job is about eight miles from where I live. On days I ride my e-bike, I get about 78 minutes of good physical activity. And on days I drive, I get about five. Even e-bikes are a really good way to get those recommended targets. And humans are really good at walking. And it's really interesting when you think about the health impacts of centering our transportation system on cars. The thing that gets measured and counted is actually deaths. Like we're really good at measuring and counting deaths. But we really don't look at cardiovascular injuries from particulate matter, even though the deaths from particulate matter from cars are even bigger than the blunt force trauma deaths. And then the thing that's completely unmeasured and uncounted is the impacts of displacing organic physical activity at the population level. And my thought is that that's the biggest impact of all, that when you take something that humans were evolved to do, and you completely supplant it with motorized transportation, we no longer get that incidental activity. I think it's Bill Nye, the science guy, who has this great quote that says, there's something wrong with the society that drives a car to go to the gym to ride an exercise bike. Yeah. Grace, you want to jump in on that? We see a lot of that in LA. And not only will we save the whole planet, but we're going to make our cities more livable. We're going to be healthier. We're going to look cuter in our clothes, just like Isabella was explaining. And I just didn't understand why people were so car-brained. Right. You were talking about livable cities. And Lindsay, that's your thing. Yeah. And I've had a lot of conversations about trying to create 15-minute cities. And what is amazing to me is that it feels like we all know the benefits of bikes. Our elected officials, what do they need? Why is this taking so long? Can I say something? I live in Redondo Beach, and you would think that a beach city would be very bike friendly. But you also have to understand that when I moved here, Toyota, Honda, and Nissan 
This is where the executives live. This is where the marketing people live. This is where their design engineers lived. And we have four refineries in the South Bay. And those refineries, those pipe fitters and everybody, they're very well paid. So our whole economy around here is based on denying the reality. It's just like, don't look up. Right. The advertising companies know a lot about you. They're constantly feeding us propaganda about how great our cars are and how they make our lives better. And so the rest of us have to spend a lot of time. We just don't have billions of dollars, right? Right. We have all the science. We have all the facts. They've got all the cognitive psychologists. They've got all the marketing gurus. They've got all the data metrics. And all the money, I might add. Yeah. They're constantly working. They never stop convincing you that cars are the way. And they send these people to community meetings and the elected officials are scared of them. And they don't see the people that are missing from the street. It's kind of like in Boulder, they said it was going to be the end of the restaurant industry when they quit allowing smoking in restaurants. And sales tax receipts at restaurants went up because they never saw the people that stayed home. I think that that's a really, really important point. And so I've really seen strong towns make a strong argument that the way we've built our cities with car-centric sprawl is actually the worst financial decision, that the most economically productive areas are dense, walkable cities built in the traditional way. And so I think that's one very strong argument that can be used to sort of counter this, but you need evidence. The second is that car crashes are really expensive. And again, my focus and concern is almost entirely on the loss of life. But sometimes when discussing these things with municipalities, the economic arguments hold more weight. There's attribution studies that looked at streets that got bike lanes proposed based on staff. And then they looked at the ones where the bike lanes were built and the bike lanes were stopped because of political opposition. And then they looked at the sales tax receipts before and after the treatment. And this is, well, it's not quite an RCT, but it's a controlled experiment. You can see that they're just much more economically productive when you slow down the cars. What's an RCT? Randomized controlled trial. Oh, okay. It's more of a natural experiment. Well, this is something that we deal with in Los Angeles all the time. You fight to put in not even a bike lane, just a bike stripe. And some people get up at community meetings and complain through the roof about it. And then the local politicians acquiesce and they take the bike stripe out or they don't put in a protected bike lane, which would allow someone like Lindsay to ride her bike through Beverly Hills. Because Lindsay won't ride her bike anywhere if there's a car going over, what, 10 miles an hour, Lindsay? Pretty much. There's a study from Portland by Roger Geller, not a randomized controlled study probably, but it showed that we really fall into three categories of like the Lycra guys, who I'd say Taylor. And Taylor is famous in LA as a cyclist, by the way. People talk about him. (laughs) And then there's the 8%, which is people in New York, you know, who are using those bike lanes or Portland. They just don't get over 8%. And I think that that's probably how our brains function around fear I don't engage in risky behavior in any way. I'm in my 50s. I don't go to the gym. I'm not in shape. But I would bike everywhere. I ditch my car. But I think I'm in that 92% of people who would bike, but I won't when I'm going to get hit by a car. I think one thing that's really important to understand about these conversations is that, you know, since the 1950s, the convenience and the property of motorists have been prioritized over the health, 
mobility, safety, and even the lives of people outside of a car, whether you're on a bike or on foot. And I kind of lump people on bikes and people on foot into the same category with respect to vulnerability. And so you're trying to overturn power structures. And anytime you do that, you're going to meet furious resistance. I'm not familiar with any time in American history where people with privilege and people with power just said, you know what, you're right. (laughs) We're going to give that up. (laughs) It's always a battle. That said, I do think most people have not ever thought about the true costs of driving everywhere, that they've never thought about my convenience as prioritized over another person's life. And there is sort of a middle chunk of those people that if they really understood that, that they would be more willing to share. I do think that there's also a big chunk of people who don't care and would hold on to things the way they are. And so I think we shouldn't be surprised that these changes meet furious resistance because you're taking privilege and you're taking power away from people. How do we do that, Bella? How do we get people to pay the full price of driving a car? Yeah, I I think that there's a number of steps, because if you think about it, every aspect of owning a car is subsidized. And the most salient example I can think of lately is if you buy a brand new electric car, you get $7,500 from the government. If you walk or bike or take transit, you get nothing. Now, that said, there are some e-bike rebate programs, but the general approach of the U.S. government is often to bribe people with a lot of money and to penalize people without it. And so the way we treat cars is very aligned with that. So practically, I think that there are several strategies we can take. One is to really start pricing parking. And there are several ways we can do that. The first is eliminate parking minimums. The second is to unbundle parking. So when a building has parking, that they unbundle it and expose storing your car to the market forces. And then the third is to price parking according to the amount of space it takes up. So parking an F-150 should cost twice as much or three times as much as parking a smart car. I think we really have to go to weight and distance-based fees for cars. There are several different reasons for that. Number one, All of the externalities of driving scale with vehicle weight. They're more likely to kill and catastrophically injure if they hit a person or even another smaller, lighter vehicle. Roadware scales to the fourth power with axle weight. And so my 3,000 pound Subaru Forester does about 50,000 times as much damage as my fully loaded cargo bike. So we really need to start pricing vehicles by weight. Because right now, all of the incentives are to have the biggest, heaviest car you can get. Electric cars don't pay a gas tax. Exactly. Although the EV's tailpipe emissions are lower, the particulate matter from the tires, which is the most toxic of the car emissions, is more because they're heavier. And the other thing about EVs is their acceleration is typically faster, which I think also carries a higher risk to people on foot or bikes. We don't talk enough about tire dust, I feel like, because somebody on Twitter, I think, called it the next DDT. It is. It's the biggest microplastic in California waters. You know, this is really fascinating. We have talked a little bit about this on Bike Talk, and I think as we talk about it, I certainly wake up to it and I see things differently, and I hope our audience does also. Lindsay, you were talking about the systems. I 
have a theory, and it's actually from a systems engineer, that the problem with why we can't get there is that we keep trying to do half measures and mobility doesn't work in pieces. It works as a system. It's like an app on your iPhone. And Bella, you're an expert in systems thinking, right? Well, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I think I have to do it a lot for my job. And you're exactly right that people hit a big barrier at some point while they're trying to do something. Say there's a bike lane all the way from their house to their job, except for this one section where they're afraid they're going to die. They're not going to bike. The whole system has to be connected and protected. And we've really done an amazing job with that for cars. It's not like you're driving on a road and all of a sudden it merges with an airplane runway. And then (laughs) two miles later, you're back on a road again. Like you have actually a separate section. But that's exactly what we've done with cars is that we have, in essence, every so often you merge with something that weighs a thousand times more than you do. So the first component actually is having it all connected and protected and working together. They do that all the time to cyclists. We've given you half a mile of bike lane. Why isn't everybody biking? And it's like, it has to come from your house. The second thing is, if you think about civil engineering, and again, I'm not a civil engineer or a traffic engineer, but if you look at, say, sewage and sanitation, 150 years ago, water and waterborne diseases killed tons of people. And they especially killed vulnerable people. They killed children and they killed old or frail people. And then we discovered that if you separate sewage from your drinking water, that you can really reduce the rates of those diseases. And we found out moreover that if you purify water, if you get all of the sewage and all of the contaminants out, that you can vastly improve the health of the population. And so now something which used to be inherently dangerous drinking water from the pump or drinking water from the tap without boiling it and filtering it and everything. A toddler can drink out of a hose and they're at no risk of death. Our transportation system could be that safe. And yet it kills 43,000 people a year. It's been the leading cause of child death by far for decades. It was surpassed in 2020, I believe, with, with guns. There was a huge spike in deaths of despair among young people during the pandemic. But the overall pattern has been that cars are the number one killer of kids. We have two and a half million injuries every year from automobiles. And if you think about that, it's a little bit like continuing to have 40,000 cholera deaths every year, decades after we've discovered sewage and sanitation. We know how to prevent these deaths. We know how to do them at a systemic level, and yet our roads are still extremely deadly and dangerous, and millions of people are injured a year. By doing a half measure, you get bike lash, you get the backlash, and then the electeds, even the most incredible champions, people back down. And I wonder if we really need to lean into a system that works for children. And I personally believe that that's almost a no car street because I just don't think I'll ever bike where I can get hit by a car or ever let a child I know or any child do that. And I wonder if there's evidence or thoughts or talk about this. Well, I want to tie together car tires and children's safety because we know that crashes are a lot deadlier the faster a car is going, the heavier the car is the more deadly it is to the person that they hit. Public health perennially has this struggle. We know what's right. 
we want everyone to live a long, healthy life. Like there's a sense that that's the right thing. And we know what leads to that or is much more likely to lead to that. And we know it promotes equity in those outcomes. I think the hard thing is what is politically viable. So something I've really been thinking about is successful aging. Obviously, the ability to walk places becomes more important as people uh, lose the ability to drive as they age. The outcomes for crash deaths are worse as people age. They become more frail. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people as they age also prefer their cars more strongly. So it's something I've definitely been thinking about. In principle, I completely agree with you. The other thing I've really been thinking about is mobility from a civil rights perspective. But a lot of the antecedents of the disparities in our transportation system have their beginnings in segregation and mid-century suburbanization of America. So basically, after World War II, the government subsidized suburbs, and then they demolished the neighborhoods of people of color and vulnerable people and poor people to plow highways and freeways through them so that somebody could drive from a suburban home through a city to an office downtown surrounded by a sea of parking. When I really started looking at this and the gobsmacking disparities in legal protections for motorists versus people outside of a car, people on foot, people on a bike, I was like, where did these just unbelievable disparities come from? And I believe that their antecedents are when those laws were written, that they embedded the social hierarchies that were in place in the 40s and 50s and the 60s. The first thing we got to say is people outside of a car have the same right to protection under the law, the same right to mobility, and the same right to safety as a person in the car. We should not get a whole different set of civil rights depending on the mode we're taking. And I think that framing, at least on its face, even if people don't want to lose privilege, I think most people at least agree with that in principle. It is aspirational to live in a walkable neighborhood. This marketing research out there from realtors, the vast majority of people want to live in walkable neighborhoods. They actually want a bike. You can literally walk to a cafe and see a friend. So open people's eyes to the alternative. Yeah, I haven't seen anything in the literature. I don't think that this has been studied. But when you're behind the wheel of a car, you have power, anonymity, and the illusion of control in a system optimized for your convenience. I always laugh, you know, make eye contact. It is not possible to make eye contact with a lot of drivers because they're in this cocoon of deal. So the first thing is you think about granting power anonymity and illusion of control and impunity to a large extent. You know, it's illegal to hit somebody with your car. As long as you remain at the scene and we're not intoxicated, the worst that'll happen to you is a ticket and a point on your license. And so if you think about the difference between how people behave, for example, behind an online troll account with an anonymous handle versus how they would behave in real life. But I think that that anonymity and that power really kind of bring out some of the worst behaviors in people and the worst impulses. Bella, that was such a concise way to put it. Power, anonymity, a sense of control all within an environment that is designed around your needs as a driver. But I would put that up against riding on a bicycle is the sense of freedom that you just can't get any other way. It's partly why we're doing the podcast. It's partly why I'm talking about bikes all the time is because I want to spread this feeling of just absolute freedom and joy that you don't get in a car. 
Absolutely. I often said when I ride my bike home from work, you know, summer evenings, I feel like a 10 year old kid on summer vacation and I'm middle-aged <laughs> coming home right, from work. Right. Um, I, but that, I know that feeling, feeling of the softness of the sunset and the smell of nature. And if you're on a quiet street, it's, it's absolutely delightful. And an interesting fact, there was a British medical journal article that showed that people who walked to work controlling for everything else that they were able to control for, things like age, body mass index, other risk factors for premature mortality. The people who walked to work had a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality. And this one surprised me. People who bike to work had a 40% reduction, meaning that even with the particulate matter, the scariness of roads, all that other stuff, that walking and biking to work is such a powerful health intervention. And it's because human beings evolved to move their bodies for transportation every day. Thank you for bringing it around to a full circle. Bella Chu and Grace Pang, thank you so much for coming on. Lindsay, any last thoughts before we let our guests go back to their thank lives? Thank you so much. And I hope you guys will come back because we haven't even touched on so many other topics. Yeah. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for having us. They talked about so many great things. One of the things I really liked was when Bella brought up the idea that humans evolved to walk about seven miles a day, five to seven miles a day. Yeah. Anything that we've done for all of the time that we've evolved, it seems like we should keep doing. Yeah. I think, wasn't it one of the ways that humans were able to defeat the Neanderthals? By walking seven miles a day? You were able to walk further and eat less. But this idea of organic physical activity is Mm -hmm. exactly what we need to build our cities for. So you don't have to get in a car to go five blocks. You can walk five blocks. It's interesting. It's fun to walk. You can ride your bike 20 blocks. You don't just get in your car, get out of your car, get in your car, get out of your car. She also talked about successful aging, which I thought was really great because I am aging (laughs) and I like to think I'm aging successfully. But, you know, so much of that has to do with creating an environment for our older population to keep active, to be able to walk, to be able to recreate. I know I think about this often, just the inherent violence of our lived environment, just our built environment, and how if you're at all in need of assistance, it becomes exponentially more dangerous. Right. As with kids. Totally. I think that also touches on Bella's use of civil rights, talking about how cars destroyed communities, and also how people have the right to get around outside of a car. Yeah. On top of that, Not only are people driving in their own sort of world in their car, but they've also been to a great extent programmed by car commercials that they should be driving as fast as they possibly can. Right. And as aggressively. Cars are supposed to elicit a sense of freedom, I think, that when you are trafficked, it isn't that at all. It's a freedom that ain't free. Exactly. You know, Nick, going back to the civil rights issue, I'm currently reading The Power Broker, the Robert Carl book about Robert Moses. And not only did he build the highways through underserved communities of color, he actually made the parkways that go from New York City out to Long Island. He made them with bridges that were so low that buses couldn't go on those highways from the inner city. So I think it really does conflate civil rights on the road and civil rights in life. Yeah. And and it's how they're designed. And I think that the takeaway from the whole interview is that half measures don't work. If you don't build a system 
for vulnerable road users. Vulnerable road users won't use the road. That's right. And our next interview is about that. I mean, every episode is about that, but this <laughs> is about Main Street in Northampton, Massachusetts. You know it, Taylor, as the home of Smith College, Northampton. And, Smith College, uh, Smith College, Smith does College. Does it ring a bell? <laughs> it does. And so $26 million is available to redesign Northampton's Main Street, which is a beautiful street full of shops and restaurants. And because it's so dangerous that it qualifies for state money. And so using what they know about what makes a city safe and what makes it livable, they're going to redesign it. And that involves taking away 18% of its parking spaces. And as we know, when you try to take away parking, people go ballistic. So I got in touch with Tony Jordan of the Parking Reform Network, and he talks to Elena Hoosman of Main Street for Everyone about what to do when people oppose safe infrastructure. So my name is Elena Hoosman. I'm a resident here in Northampton, and I am one of the co-founders of the campaign that we coined Main Street for Everyone, um, which was a progressive campaign to push the city in a more progressive design for downtown Main Street. Main Street Northampton is one of the widest main streets in Massachusetts. It has six lanes dedicated to cars. Two sides of the road are dedicated to angle parking, and then there's four travel lanes. We're a small town with about 30,000 residents. The planning process started way back in 2005, but I would say in earnest really started in the winter of 2020. There's been a lot of public engagement throughout the entire process. And what we're seeing in the design, it's going to be a building to building redesign. So it's a huge opportunity to widen sidewalks, make sidewalks ADA accessible, increase the tree wells and engineer those such that we can really have mature canopy cover on the street. And then also reduce the travel lane down to one lane with the flex lane down the middle for emergency vehicles and turn lanes where appropriate. I think one of the most controversial pieces of the design is removing much of the angled parking. It's super dangerous and a lot of crashes on Main Street due to the angled parking. There's a number of parking lots immediately off Main Street within a block of Main Street. We have a parking garage that the first hour is free and then 75 cents thereafter. The city has done some parking management recently to really push people off of Main Street to start parking on some of those side lots. I'd love to hear first just a little about you and the Parking Reform Network and the work that you all do. I am Tony Jordan. I am the president of the Parking Reform Network. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I worked for a long time actually in software development. I did some time working as a union organizer. I've got a degree in politics from UC Santa Cruz, and I had never thought about parking really until about 2010. I got rid of my car in 2008. I have two kids and we had one at the time. So one of my kids, we've never had a car who is going to be 13 next week. I heard about a book online called High Cost of Free Parking and I got it and I read it and it kind of just changed my whole worldview. Literally, I couldn't look at parking spaces the same anymore after I read the book because I was like, wow, these are expensive. They take up so much space. There's water runoff problems. There's problems with housing, all these things, traffic. 
from this one thing. And I looked in what was going on in Portland. It was actually, for the time, pretty advanced. We had no mandates near corridors and downtown. But then a few years later, there was like a big kerfuffle around housing being built with no parking. And the neighbors in the neighborhood around that got really mad, which is close to my neighborhood. And I started going down and saying like, no, let's not mess this up. Let's not add new parking mandates back. And I met some people that were agreeing with me. There wasn't a lot of organizing going on and we lost. The city actually imposed some mandates back that last for a few years, but I kept at it. Around 2018, 19, I started formulating the idea around starting this organization. And then in 2020, we launched as the Parking Reform Network, which is an international nonprofit organization, currently a little over 500 members, several hundred other supporters with the kind of goal of like just creating some momentum and communication around this issue. There's always been people working on it, but not coordinated. And it's the kind of issue that impacts a lot of things. If you are into climate action or transportation or housing, transit advocacy, all these issues are really impacted by parking. Even if you want to just start a small business, right? It's impacted by parking. But until recently, there hasn't been a way to really find best practices, messaging, get some social camaraderie around it and move it forward. And we're seeing as a result of our work and also just the tireless work of Professor Shoup and the amazing book by this guy, Henry Gabar, that just came out. The issue is really seeing like a moment in the sun and moving forward pretty quickly. And it's very exciting. So we're trying to just keep hold and help keep things moving forward as we go. There's a moment right now, I would say, in parking and parking reform. That's what we're seeing across the country. But you've been at it for a really long time. So I'd be curious to just hear what you've learned along the way and what are some key tips that you like to pass on to folks who are just getting into this or know nothing about parking. Any adult who drives, you know, has a pretty big opinion about parking. They want more of it. They want it to be cheaper. And that's natural. Anything we have our base that we like or that think we need our base instinct is we should have abundance and it should be cheap or free. But when you explain to people the cost, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars for a structured parking space, which adds hundreds of dollars to the cost of rent for a business or a person living in that space or working in that space. The space of a parking space is three or 400 square feet with the aisles and everything included. So two of those parking spaces, which are commonly required for any house in the United States, is as big as the apartment. And then all these other impacts of water runoff and heat islands and just the traffic, like a battery for traffic. So all these bad things kind of there. And so I found that when you tell people about this, they might not become a shoepista. They're not going to like join the fight necessarily, but it does make most people kind of soften their opinion on the topic in general. It's so logical. Then when you actually point out why we got in this situation that we've had 60 years of arbitrary parking mandates that are truly ridiculous, like things with two or three significant figure digits, like one point something, something spaces per X, you know, like spaces for drive-in movie theaters, bowling alleys, they're all over the place. These requirements were all just put in place and they're very hard to change. And so we've got this kind of anachronistic arbitrary force that has this terrible knock-on effects. What I found is when you appeal to that and you show people just the basic ridiculousness of the situation and the bad impacts, it resonates with a few people and it resonates very strongly. And that's great for organizing because those people join the fight. The beautiful thing is they're, since they're coming from multidisciplinary areas, different housing, transportation, it's a great coalition building space. People from transportation side will get involved in housing and vice versa around this issue. So it's a great place to activate new activists. And then everyone else, you're just trying to educate them enough that they're not going to fight the policies when you push it forward or not going to fight as hard. 
The solutions for parking reform are cheap. They make money a lot of times for a city. They generate revenue you can use for redistributive ways of paying for bus passes or improving bike access. And they're pretty easy to implement. So it's like a pretty sweet spot if you're into trying to make change happen because not a lot of people doing it and it has a big impact on several issues. Building that coalition with diverse perspectives is something that we really tried to do with Main Street for Everyone. And one thing that we were really successful at was going door to door and having conversations with business owners, because oftentimes those are folks who are impacted the most by removing parking from immediately outside their business or that perceived loss of customers based on the loss of parking. So I'd be curious to hear what you say to business owners when you're engaging them in these conversations around lost parking in and around their businesses. Obviously, every community is different and we do need to look at the particulars and listen to people who are in the community that's impacted. What you can tell people is in some places where there are data, it's pretty easy to measure the impact of parking reforms on businesses, especially if you have sales tax, right? You just look, did the sales tax revenue go up after we did the reforms? And in San Francisco, when they implemented demand-based parking in some of these reforms, it improved sales tax revenue. I think there's a focus on what's outside a shopkeeper's door, the parking space there, and not thinking about the turnover aspect and the walkability of a neighborhood. You're asking someone to trust that the process works, but know that places that are stickier, that are more walkable and friendly to be, people stay longer and they spend more money. And people who come by other modes also often spend more money than people who drive. If a place is a drive-in, jump out quick, buy your thing, you're really not looking to invest in that neighborhood, really, or that community business. So I think that those are some of the aspects where you can just look at places where these reforms have happened and see that the sky didn't fall, that often the community thrives. There's also the people who don't have businesses yet in a community that might like to start businesses. The fact that parking requirements could be so suppressive on new entries into the business environment where you want to open a coffee shop. There's examples. There's one in Dallas, Texas. The person wants to open a neighborhood coffee shop and the city wants to make them have 18 parking spaces, right? It's because these regulations are so out of whack with reality, it can make it so someone can't open the business of their dreams in the location that is great for them. And you touched on several cities, Dallas, San Francisco being two of them. I think something that we've seen time and time again here in Northampton is that folks are saying, well, look at Europe, for example, or they do it in Boston, or they're doing it in Cambridge, they're doing it in San Francisco. And opponents are saying, well, we're not those places. Most small cities in the United States that we've looked at don't have parking mandates in their downtown or business districts. If they had them, they got rid of them actually years ago, decades ago, in most cases, we don't even know when, because they realized that it was very difficult to have economic activity in a downtown or a main street if you were requiring a lot of parking for every business. To date, there's about 50-something cities around the United States that have gotten rid of their parking mandates entirely. Ann Arbor is one of them. We have a map. I don't have the population figures at the top of my head, but they range from very, very small cities to very large cities, from Alaska to Gainesville. They're in all corners of the United States. It's not an even distribution, to be sure, but they're around everywhere. There are cities with little transit, some transit. And because the key is that that reform doesn't actually change anything overnight. It doesn't remove parking. It doesn't ban parking. It just says... You can open a business and some of the new things that are built or new businesses that open into my community won't be oriented towards cars. They'll be oriented towards other modes. That's great. Managing the on-street parking is also something that happens in cities of all sizes. And that's just a logical thing. You have a lot of people that want to use a space and so you manage it and then you reinvest the money. One of the keys to parking management is that 
you're managing by demand. So kind of by definition, you're never going to raise the price or lower the price so much that you get fewer customers coming in, right? You're trying to get the same number of customers coming in in the main street, which means somehow people are getting there. I would say like on your main street, you're remaining the parking on the main street, right? If people are really truly worried about access, make all of those spaces, pick up drop-off spaces or spaces for people with disabilities. Make them all loading, unloading for people or goods for people with disabilities, which then you're really putting your money where your mouth is as far as access. This is increasing access for people by removing storage for cars. The car parked on the street is not providing any access to anyone. Sure, access by car is access to the main street, but parking the car right on the main street has nothing to do with access for anybody. It's access for an inanimate, non-moving object in front of the store. You know, there are so many good books out there. Jeff Speck's The Walkable City, Suburban Nation, but Donald Shoup's The High Cost of Free Parking is a great book that Henry Gabar talks so much about in Paved Paradise. And I love it that Tony brought up so much of Shoup's work. Yeah, he mentioned Shoup and the Shoupistas, which is great. Anyone who hates parking or loves getting rid of parking minimums could identify, I guess, as a Shoupista. Right. Didn't you work on that, Seamus? I got to work on it with California State Assemblywoman Laura Friedman. She was able to pass legislation last year that got rid of parking minimums in the state of California. And, you know, it's really crazy. Once your eyes open to it and you drive along these strodes and you see a McDonald's and a Pet Boys and all these different shops and they are surrounded by a moat of parking spaces that is very seldom even halfway full. And those have been mandated over the years. So it's about time that we took those out of the game. Yeah, it makes you think of like in the Matrix when you take the red pill, which lets you see what's really happening. When you start to see the effect of having these parking minimums and having people so attached to being able to park right in front of where they're going so they don't have to walk for, God forbid, a block, that you begin to see what the Shoupistas are talking about. So Parking Reform Network, check it out. And you can go to parkingreform.org for more information. And if you're in a struggle versus people who have windshield bias or car brain in your city, and you're trying to make it more livable, please email us at biketalk.org and come on the show. So now Seamus has an interview. I got to interview Joanna Gubman. She actually had me as a featured speaker at her organization called Urban Environmentalists. And they had a happy hour last week and asked me to come talk a little bit about that. We get DMs, we get emails. People are interested in the intersection of housing and bikes. And since I was there with her, she's also a board member on the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. In addition to being the executive director of Urban Environmentalists, I just wanted to ask her a little bit about that intersectionality. I think you're also going to have to define YIMBY. YIMBY, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the term YIMBY or NIMBY, yes, in my backyard versus not in my backyard. It has to do with folks not wanting change in their area. Here is my interview. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to Bike Talk. I am here with Joanna Goodman, 
What are the organizations that you are affiliated with? It's not just the urban environmentalists. You hail from several urbanist groups. Yeah, so I run the Urban Environmentalist Initiative, which is within the Yimby Action Network. And we also work with our friends at Yimby Law. And I personally am also on the board of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. We do statewide work in California on urban environmentalists, but also in Chicagoland. Mm -hmm. So we've got an Illinois chapter. Mm -hmm. And Yimby Action as a whole has 50 chapters now across, I think, 24 states. Mm -hmm. And so specifically within the Urban Environmentalist Initiative, we're trying to connect the dots between land use, especially housing, but also transportation, and environmentalism, so climate, energy, habitat, preservation, things like that. Very cool. Do you think you could describe sort of your viewpoint on how bikes relate and sort of interface with urban environmentalism? Yeah, totally. So... Across the whole United States, transportation is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions that we have. And when we look at how to fix that, yes, electric cars are helpful and important and we need them. And we aren't going to get there fast enough to meet all of our climate goals. And there's kind of a geometry issue with cars, which is that they take up a huge amount of space. So when we're building for cars, we basically cannot build for people. We cannot fit a reasonable number of people in a physical space and have people able to live in climate resilient locations that allow us to have a low carbon footprint. It's a matter of our, our energy planning and our also climate resilience planning to think about how can we get more people living in places where we're already driving less. It is already a walkable community. You can already hop on your bike and go to the grocery store. Or if you do need to get in a car, some people will, that's okay, but it's at least only a mile and everybody else can use a bike. And so I think that's a really key thing thinking about how bikes are important on our advocacy is they allow us to have communities that can be inherently low carbon without having to do anything fancy or special. And there's a lot that we can do even without new laws if we just get our state agencies, our city departments to start taking the action they already have in their power to do. Right. A bicycle weighs about 2% as much as a car. Right. And it uses about 2% of the energy right. of a car. Yeah. So an electric car only gets you a 50% carbon savings mm -hmm. relative to a gas car. So how about a 98% energy savings from using a bicycle? I love that. Last question would be, we often ask people, what is their bike joy? What do they love about biking? What's their ideal bike ride? I mean, there's some really amazing, beautiful bike rides I've been on in the Redwoods in Northern California mm. that are pretty unbeatable and just like the misty air. But I'm going to go with something a little closer to home, which is just biking through our JFK promenade in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It used to be kind of a traffic throughway. And in the pandemic, we turned it into a pedestrian promenade. Mm -hmm. And now I can go nearly car free from my house to the ocean. Yeah. And there's public art there. There are people playing on the public pianos. They're really nice places to stop and sit if you need to. It's this beautiful expression of living together joyfully. And on a bike, you're kind of at the perfect 
speed to see it all and be a part of it all. Urban environmentalists, they are a grassroots organization. They have a lot of membership and they are advocating for housing and a great group to get affiliated with. So check out Urban Environmentalists. If you like our show, go to Spotify or Apple Music and like us. It really helps the show. It helps us know what's going on. Give us some feedback. If there's an interview that you want to hear, send us an email at biketalk.org. If you've missed some of our last few shows, Lindsay did a great interview last week with Peter Norton. It's really wonderful. So thanks, Gary, for the email this week and keep us posted. And thank you, Seamus and Taylor. And Taylor, you want to take us out with a quote? Absolutely. I believe it was Harry Ray who said, it's not that the bicycle solves any one problem, but that it is a part of a solution to many problems. Beauty. And I think that's true. It is true. All right. Ride safe. Peace out. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.